At this hour, about a dozen more hostages held in Gaza are on their back to Israel. Their release is part of a truce between Israel and Hamas that has now been extended by two additional days. The latest on the exchange of hostages for Palestinian prisoners coming up. Today is Monday, November 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, dozens of journalists have been killed during the war between Israel and Hamas. Most of them were Palestinian. This pattern leaves Palestinian journalists in a precarious situation. More on efforts to document the war by people who are also struggling to survive it. And our latest unsung hero. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Israeli military says 11 more Israeli hostages have been released by Hamas as Israel prepares to release more Palestinian prisoners and detainees on this fourth day of the Israel-Hamas temporary ceasefire. NPR's Daniel Estrin has the latest from Tel Aviv. All 11 released were taken hostage from the same kibbutz community near the Gaza border October 7th. Some of them have dual French, German, and Argentinian citizenship. The community said those being released are mothers and children as young as three years old, who all have fathers still in captivity in Gaza. Qatar says Israel, for its part, is releasing three women and 30 Palestinian minors who were being held on various charges in Israeli jails. Daniel Estrin, NPR News. Tel Aviv. The man accused of shooting and injuring three U.S. college students of Palestinian descent in Burlington, Vermont, has pleaded not guilty to charges of attempted second-degree murder. Jason Eaton's been arraigned and is being held without bond. Rich Price, whose nephew Hisham Awatani was among those shot, says he's stunned. Tragic irony is not even the right phrase, but to have them come stay with me for Thanksgiving and have something like this happen speaks to the level of civic vitriol, uh, speaks to the level of uh, uh, hatred that exists uh, in some corners of this, of this country. It speaks to a sickness of gun violence that exists in this country. Federal authorities have warned of an increase in attacks on Palestinian, Muslim, and Jewish communities in the U.S. since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter lies and reposed at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library Museum, allowing members of the public to pay their respects. Mrs. Carter passed away earlier this month at the age of 96. Annual climate talks begin later this week in Dubai. NPR's Rebecca Hirsch reports tens of thousands of people are expected to attend. The main events at global climate negotiations are talks between world leaders about how to rein in greenhouse gas emissions and pay for the costs of a hotter planet. But on the sidelines, oil and gas companies are expected to be particularly well represented around this year's talks, which are being held in the petroleum-dependent United Arab Emirates. That has some climate experts concerned about the influence of fossil fuel lobbying. At the same time, other experts point out that annual negotiations are a crucial platform for those who are being hit hardest by climate-fueled disasters, including low-lying and less wealthy countries that are fighting for financial support to deal with the effects of climate change. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. The Dow is down 56 points at 35,333. 
It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you ride the MBTA Green Line, you'll likely run into some delays tonight. Buses will replace Green Line service on the Union Square and Medford branches of the Green Line extension. That's from 8.45 tonight through the end of service. Buses will be offered until December 10th. They'll also provide service on the Green Line between some downtown stops on all four branches for the next week. The changes will allow crews to repair or replace tracks and help alleviate some slow zones. A Cambridge City Council committee will vote tomorrow on whether to ban gas-powered leaf blowers. If the committee supports the ban, the City Council could decide the issue next month. Cities including Lexington, Arlington, Dedham and Belmont already have similar bans in part because of the noise the blowers make. Patricia Nolan is a Cambridge City Councilor who supports the ordinance. She says the bans in nearby cities help push this one. Many residents started wondering, why isn't Cambridge doing this? Why aren't we phasing in a ban given the serious emission pollution that happens and the worker health and safety? If the city council approves it, the ban on gas-powered leaf blowers for residential use would start in 2025. A wake begins this hour for political strategist John Walsh. The 65-year-old died earlier this month after a bout with stomach cancer. Walsh is credited with helping get Deval Patrick elected in 2006 as the first black governor of Massachusetts. A celebration of life will be held tomorrow for Walsh at Fennel Hall in Boston. Merriam-Webster says people who want to keep it real this year had their say, and that's why the Springfield-based company says it chose authentic as its word of the year. It's defined as not false or imitation. Merriam-Webster Dictionary's Peter Sokolowski says the word of the year gives you a snapshot of what the year was like. We do see that ideas about truth and uh, verification of identity and fact-checking and trust are all top of mind. And our language counts. You know, words matter. And we find as a dictionary that people really pay attention to language that's in the news. And a word like authentic is an idea that is on our mind. This is Merriam-Webster's 20th anniversary of choosing a top word. In the forecast, cooling down a little bit, 46 degrees now should fall to about freezing overnight tonight on the windy side. Tomorrow should be sunny and cooler than it was today, about 40 for a high, still windy. By midweek, we should see the sunshine, but more clouds as the day progresses, still about 40 degrees. Again, 46 in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A deal has been struck to extend the temporary ceasefire in Gaza. That is according to officials in Qatar who've been mediating between Israel and Hamas. Hamas also said in a statement that a deal has been reached. Now, this comes as Israel and Hamas hold another round of hostage and prisoner swaps. Hamas has handed over 17 hostages. That would be 11 Israelis and six workers. Israel is poised to release 33 Palestinian prisoners in exchange. Well, NPR's Brian Mann has been following developments from Tel Aviv. He's with me now. Hey, Brian. Hi, Mary Louise. Okay, start with the details of what we know about this extension of the truce. It is still temporary? That's right. Uh, This first prisoner exchange agreement was for four days, and that ends tonight. So, This new deal, really hammered out at the very last minute, will stretch the ceasefire another two days. It was negotiated with the help of officials in Egypt, Qatar, and the U.S., and 
The framework appears to be that each additional day of the pause, Hamas will release roughly another 10 Israeli hostages. Israeli officials have signaled a willingness to release three Palestinian prisoners for every Israeli hostage that's let go. Again, mm -hmm. we're waiting to see details of that confirmed by Israel. But a, a short time ago, President Biden thanked the parties involved for working out this arrangement. And, and Biden said, I'm quoting here, Mary Louise, we will not stop until all of the hostages held by Hamas terrorists are released. And I understand this latest group, this latest group of Israeli hostages has now been released. What do we know? According to the Israeli military, another 11 Israeli hostages, among them some very young children, are now out. The Red Cross brought them out of Gaza a short time ago. We believe six ties, as you mentioned, are also released. Uh, now that they're safely in Israel, buses will transport 33 Palestinian prisoners to locations in Jerusalem and the West Bank. So despite incredible anger and distrust on both sides, this arrangement has continued to succeed so far and will now continue through Wednesday. One notable thing here is how Israelis are responding to these releases. I've been in the big square here in Tel Aviv where people are gathering, and there just aren't big celebrations. There's joy, but it's it's a solemn joy as Israelis remain focused on the hostages who haven't come home. Uh, today, many of these hostages released are very young children who still have parents left behind, still held hostage in Gaza. Mm. Step back and, and let me step back from the today's news and let me just ask this. Is there any sign that what we're still calling a temporary ceasefire, a pause, that this could lead to something more permanent? There's not. At this point, there's not a sign of that. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has continued to say bluntly this war will resume as soon as this hostage for prisoner exchange process plays out. Leaders of Israel's military have said the same thing. And, and this is something I'm hearing from Israelis on the street. They want the hostages home. That's the first priority. But there's a lot of popular support for fighting Hamas until the organization is wiped out. You know, Hamas's attack October 7th killed roughly 1,200 people. They took an estimated 240 prisoners. That was a shock. And people here say they won't feel safe until Hamas is gone from Israel's borders. And then speak to the situation inside Gaza, because that's been a goal of this pause, to let food, to let aid reach the people who are still there. What do we know? Is aid making its way inside Gaza? Yeah, I spoke to an official with the World Health Organization today, and a lot of food and fuel and medical supplies are reaching the hardest hit areas of Gaza. But it's important to say things are really grim. Uh, parts of this densely populated community have been flattened. The last 24 hours, heavy rains have been falling. That's adding to the misery. Uh, NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, was able to talk to a man named Hatem Selmi from Gaza City, who's just struggling to survive. And what Selmi says is that life was catastrophic the days leading up to the truce with no food and water. With the ceasefire, he says he and seven members of his family have been getting a little bit of help, uh, some relief, but he says uh, that's not enough. There's too little aid to meet the demand, he told us. So far, according to officials in Gaza, more than 14,000 Palestinians, many of them civilians, have died. Uh, experts I've been speaking to say until the war really ends, this humanitarian crisis is just going to grow. Yeah. Um, Brian, you are there in Israel. But before I let you go, I want to ask about something that happened here in the U.S., the three Palestinian men who were shot and wounded over the weekend in Vermont. You spoke to the mother of one of the men. She lives in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. What would she tell you? 
Yeah, Elizabeth Price is the mother of Hisham al-Watani, one of those Palestinian college students. She told me by phone today from Ramallah that she and her husband decided it would be better for their son to stay in the U.S. through the holidays because of the war in Gaza and the growing violence in the West Bank. The last six weeks have been a time of great suffering in Palestine, and, and we have suffered. My husband didn't want Hisham to come back for Christmas because he thought America would be safe and safer than, than Palestine. So now she and her husband are racing to travel from Ramallah to the U.S. And the man accused of shooting these Palestinian men, Jason Eaton, pleaded not guilty in court today in Vermont. That is NPR's Brian Mann reporting for us from Tel Aviv. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Before Russia invaded Ukraine, Russia invaded Georgia, and Russian troops still occupy 20% of the country. But the rest of Georgia continues to welcome Russians and Russian businesses, even as Georgia seeks membership in the EU. As NPR's Charles Maines reports, it's a balancing act with no clear endgame. Here's the scene. In Georgia's resort city of Batumi, on the Black Sea, a packed crowd at a recent concert is watching the American band The Killers, who are killing it. Until they weren't. Observing a band tradition, Killers singer Brennan Flowers invites an audience member to join on drums. Randomly, he chooses a Russian. I don't know, you know, we, we don't know the etiquette of this land, but he, this guy's a Russian. Are you okay with a Russian coming up here? <laughs> Many were not, and the situation quickly turned ugly. You finished yet or no? You want to flip me up? You come up here. The killers had inadvertently stepped into a controversy that has roiled Georgian society for much of its history. How to navigate relations with their bigger and more powerful Russian neighbors. It's a debate that's grown only more acute amid the current war in Ukraine. The Ukrainian scenario is a copy-paste of what happened in Georgia. That's Nikolas Samkharadze, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in Georgian's parliament. He's also a member of the ruling Georgia Dream Party. He says the recent tensions with Moscow trace back to 2008, when Russian forces seized 20% of Georgian territory in a five-day war. The fighting broke out just months after NATO promised Georgia a path towards eventual membership in the military alliance. We learned that uh, when Russia invaded us, we, we stood there alone. Samkharadze argues NATO's partial embrace left Georgia vulnerable to Russian aggression, which in 2008 came without any real consequences for Moscow. Samkharadze says it was a bitter lesson for Georgia in big power politics between East and West. Yeah, we had the moral support from the West. But three months later, it was again business as usual with Russia. And that's what can make this government's current policies somewhat confusing. Today, on the streets of Georgia's leafy capital, Tbilisi, Russians are seemingly everywhere. Many arrived in the days after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, fleeing possible military conscription. But Russians of all political stripes continue to enjoy visa-free travel to Georgia. Russian airlines restarted daily flights over the summer. Russian nationals can still buy property and easily open businesses. Russian tourism is booming. And Georgia, well, the government has refused to join the West in imposing sanctions on Moscow. In fact, trade between the two countries has only expanded amid the war in Ukraine. For us, our interests are the most important. Georgia is simply doing what's best for Georgia, argues Samkharadze, at least while the West is providing zero protections, military or financial, in return. So by imposing sanctions, we would never manage to hurt Russian economy. But what we would manage to do is to shoot uh, our own uh, foot. 
I mean, what's the point? Uh, if you cannot uh, harm Russia, then why, why should you harm yourself? Government critics and would-be challengers ahead of national elections next year say Georgia shouldn't focus so heavily on the past. Gigo Bokeria leads the pro-European movement for Liberty Party. I think our allies underestimated Russian threat, but does it change our, our choice to be part of that world instead of uh, totalitarian uh, dictatorships. Bukharia says the current government's decision to accommodate Moscow is hurting Georgia's long-term prospects, both with the EU and NATO. They are fundamentally exploiting the natural fear of our citizens of war and Russian aggression and trying to use that threat as a justification for distancing us from uh, free world. That includes mimicking what critics say are illiberal Russian-style policies at home on issues such as LGBTQ rights. Last March, the government also adopted a controversial foreign agent law that bore a strong resemblance to Russian laws that have been used to target government opponents and crush civil society. A wave of protests in the capital ultimately saw Georgia Dream rescind the bill, but opposition politicians like Yelena Khashtaria, who rallied the public against the law, say deep suspicions of Russian influence linger. When you need to survive to have the Western support, and you are taking the steps that actually go against Western values, go against Western recommendations, go against your own interests, then the question is why you are doing that. Three weeks ago, the European Union granted Georgia provisional candidacy for eventual EU membership, offering more encouraging assessments to Ukraine and another former Soviet Republic, Moldova. Hashtaria worries that under the current government, Georgia risks being left behind. For the first time in our history, Europe is watching and the West is watching towards this region. And at this very moment, they are doing whatever they can to miss this historic opportunity. This Georgian debate is unfolding at a moment when the region is in flux over Russia's war in Ukraine. The outcome of that conflict, more than anything, may ultimately decide tiny Georgia's future. And just how long Georgia's balancing act between East and West can last. Charles Maines, NPR News, Tbilisi, Georgia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 25 minutes, when apple growers in West Virginia couldn't find buyers for their bumper crop this year, they got federal help to turn their harvest into a major donation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org and the Provider Group an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high-net-worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. A four-week rally for the Dow came to an end today. The Dow lost nearly two-tenths of a percent, S&P lost exactly two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq fell less than one-tenth of a percent. Even with people traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, the average price of gasoline still dropped a little bit in the state. AAA Northeast puts the statewide average at 3.40 a gallon. That's down two cents in the past week, 18 cents down from a month ago. The average in Boston is 3.42. The lowest average in the state is Franklin County, where it's 3.17 a gallon. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. 
Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. The sun sets at 414 this afternoon. It was a nice afternoon. Wind should pick up tonight. Temperatures fall to about freezing. Clear skies tonight. Nice for full moon watching. Tomorrow, generally sunny, windy, only about 39 for a high. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We're going to hear now from the author of a book that came out this fall. It's a book about a trial, a complete spectacle of a trial, a nation riveted by the proceedings. At the center of the trial, the testimony of a man who says one provably false thing after another. The more outrageously, obviously untrue the things the man says, the more his supporters surge to his defense. The book is fiction, but based on real events in 19th century England and Jamaica. The title is The Fraud. The author is Zadie Smith. And when we reached her in London, I asked why she was drawn to the saga of Sir Roger Tichborne. I think I've always been interested in contradictory figures like this. Like, I remember being really fascinated by the AJ trial, even from over here in England. The idea that the truth wasn't the ultimate test in that case. It happened again with Trump and it happened with the Titchborn claimant too, that when a system is so twisted and perverse and so unjust, there will be a popular reaction against it. And those kind of people who appear in the form of fiction, that's the best way I can put it. I guess OJ appeared in some sense as a white black man. Trump appears as a kind of working class billionaire, man of the people who was also a real estate mogul. And Titchborn was another one of these figures. They use fiction. They use the tools of fiction. And because I'm a fiction writer, that interests me. You mentioned O.J. Simpson. You mentioned Donald Trump. I never did. Uh, And I was going to ask whether our contemporary politics were on your mind, to what extent they were on your mind as you were writing. I mean, I don't think you could have a mind in the past 20 years without contemporary politics pressing in on them. it was on my mind, but to be honest, the parallels between the trials, I, I didn't have to make any effort in that, that direction. They just existed. I mean, there even is in the Titchborne trial, an almost crazed lawyer who was interested in the kind of theory of a leader coming every, I think it's every seven years in his case, to change humanity. There was this kind of Steve Bannon type Giuliani mix in one person. So these things kept happening as I was reading. So I didn't have to do much in that direction. All I did was tell the truth and the the analogies kind of made themselves. Hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the characters. Um, One of them is William Ainsworth, who was a real writer, a contemporary, fair to say, a frenemy of Charles Dickens. Yeah, I think frenemies the right word. And he published a bunch of novels, most of which have been lost to history. Did you read a bunch of them to try to capture him? I mean, I have all of them. 
reading all of them is a task beyond my capabilities, I think. <laughs> or at least it, four... interest, it sounds like. Right. Yeah. There's 43 of them, I think, altogether. It just interested me that he had written all these books and was so completely forgotten. And I like the idea of someone who was so optimistic about fiction, who loved it so much, but who had absolutely no talent. I, I found that combination <laughs> inherently comic. Charles Dickens does not come across as a particularly amiable character uh, in this novel. And I wondered, did you, as one of the you know, most prominent writers living and working today in Britain, have fun? Did you find joy in skewering one of the most prominent writers living and working a century and a half ago in the UK? Listen, if I'm skewering Dickens, I'm skewering myself because the traits he has, the personality traits, I know I share a lot of them. So it, it was in no way attack. If it's anything, it's, it's a self-attack because I recognize that kind of writerly ruthlessness and monomania and, <laughs> and foolishness about politics and sentimentality. Those are all things that are in me as much as they're in him. So maybe that's why the portrait seems severe. You both um, have a talent for building characters. And there's one more I want to ask about, which is Andrew Bogle. Right. He grew up enslaved on a sugarcane plantation in Jamaica. How does he enter your story? Well, he was the witness, the main witness in the trial. Without him, there would be no trial. He's also a real person? He was a real person? He's a person. completely real person. Okay. Everybody in the book is real. There are okay. no fictional people in there, really. And there are, I think, 12 volumes of the Titchbourne trial. Obviously, I have not read all of them. But that means that as a black man in Britain, his is probably one of the longest narratives we have, I think, of that period, of a black man in a courtroom describing his own life. It's an incredible oral tale. And so I felt like I wanted to preserve it. I wanted people to be able to read it. And I wanted to demonstrate what made this trial so compelling because it wasn't the Titchborn claimant, it was Bogle. People bought papers obsessively to read what he had to say, both about his life in Jamaica and his life in England. You're hopping back and forth in this novel between, um, between two countries, between England and Jamaica. And there's one line I wanted to ask you about because it's beautiful writing. You say, England was not a real place at all. England was an elaborate alibi. As I say, it's beautiful. What does it mean? I mean that England's history is mostly offshore, that its colonial brutality was offshore, its enslavement of millions was offshore, and that that enabled England to have an idea of itself which is not accurate. And that is what I wanted to write about, the gap between the delusion, the belief of what England is and what it really was. Now I am English and I love England, so the truth to me really matters. I, I need to know it. I need to know it to retain the love I have for my country, but also to know it exactly what it was and what it did. And the brutality of its behavior in the Caribbean, I, I think is with, without equal. So part of writing this novel was, was to find out the truth for myself. Hmm. And this is, um, this is your eighth novel. It's your first work of historical fiction. So you're going back and excavating events from 150 years ago. To what extent did that inform your understanding of England today? I think those delusions remain. I think they're incredibly hard 
to let go of. I think one of the things I really noticed, I've always noticed since I was growing up, is that the thing we're famous for as a country, I think, is our sense of humour, that we're, we're funny. And we value this very highly. And one of the things I noticed about it is that, as well as being delightful, it is also self-protective. So when I sat down to write this novel, I could very clearly envision an English reader thinking, as they started to read, oh, you're, you're getting bogged down. Oh, she's going to be serious. Oh, she's not being funny anymore. Oh, no, she's going to corner us about the enslaved people and the colonial situation. This kind of English feeling that you've stopped being fun when you do that. You've, you've dragged things down. You've, you've become belligerent. So I wanted in, in my um, most ironic and most comic and most charming voice to tell the truth. So the novel, I think when you read it, I hope when you read it, for quite a while, you might not think you're about to hear anything you don't want to hear, <laughs> but you will hear it and you'll hear it in full. Well, it was a joy to read, Zadie Smith. Thank you for writing it. Thank you. It was a pleasure to write. The book is The Fraud. The author is Zadie Smith. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For the first time in more than 100 years, a Spanish-language opera takes the stage at the Met. That story coming up in about 25 minutes on WBUR. In sports, Boston Bruins are in Ohio to take on the Columbus Blue Jackets tonight. Celts have the night off. They will host the Chicago Bulls tomorrow. It is 45 degrees now in the Boston area. should be windy tonight. Clear skies. Tomorrow is sunny and cooler than today was. Just about 40 degrees for a high. This is WBUR. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC, and Weston Nurseries. Tis the season to visit holiday trees, greens, ornaments, and home decor. Hingham, Hopkinton, and Chelmsford, or online at westonnurseries.com. I'm Scott Tong. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, some state lawmakers have considered exceptions to abortion bans. Well, very few of those exceptions have been granted. A new investigation by ProPublica reveals one reason why. Lobbying by anti-abortion religious activists. That's next time in Here and Now. Listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Burlington, Vermont, a suspect has been charged with attempted second-degree murder in the shooting of three college students of Palestinian descent. Family members spoke at a press conference this afternoon with local and federal officials, as Michaela Lafrock of, of Vermont Public Radio tells us. Burlington police say the young men were on a walk Saturday evening and speaking a mix of Arabic and English when they were shot. Two of them were wearing traditional Palestinian scarves. Rich Price is an uncle of one of the victims. His family hosted all three young men for Thanksgiving, and he's visited them in the hospital. I'm blown away by their resilience, by their good humor in the face of these difficult times. I moved here 15 years ago, and uh, I never imagined that this sort of thing could happen. The suspect has pleaded not guilty. Burlington's mayor said he spoke to President Biden about the shooting. He said he thanked him for federal law enforcement's role in securing a quick arrest. 
For NPR News, I'm Michaela Lafrac in Burlington. The Biden administration is trying to alleviate any supply chain issues around essential medicines needed during the holiday season. Speaking from the White House, President Biden says he's doing all he can to bring down the cost as many Americans continue express, to express frustration over the economy and the cost of living. Wages for working families have gone up while inflation has come down 65 percent. Giving families a little more money in their pockets and a little more breathing room for this holiday season. But we know the prices are still too high for too many things. That times are still too tough for too many families. But we made progress, but we have more work to do. Biden is expanding the use of the Defense Production Act to alleviate any potential drug shortages this winter upended by the pandemic. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council is considering a guaranteed basic income program for city families who live below the poverty line. Sponsors of the measure say nearly 19 percent of Boston residents live in poverty. That includes about one-third of all children in Boston. Advocates say providing a basic income improves quality of life. Chelsea and Cambridge have similar programs in place. Every year, the state legislature has to finalize a budget that ties up loose ends, but it has yet to do so this year. This is lawmakers' second most tardy closeout budget since at least 1995. The delay means allocations, including a quarter of a million dollars for the state's emergency shelter system, are in limbo. It also means the state comptroller, William McNamara, missed the October deadline to file annual financial reports. Last week, he prodded lawmakers to get the budget done. Boston had an exceptionally high tide this morning, leading to minor flooding along the coastline. So-called king tides occur several times each year when the moon, the sun, and the earth align. They've been getting higher with sea level rise. As WBOR's Barbara Moran reports, today's king tide offers a look at the city's future. Boston's experienced about 10 inches of sea level rise over the last century. This morning, that extra water was pouring onto the paving stones at the end of Long Wharf. So right now what we're looking at is the very end of Long Wharf is underwater. We've got water coming up through storm drains at the Chart House right here, and we're not even at high tide. That's Rebecca Shore with UMass Boston's Stone Living Lab. She says the sea around Boston will rise at least another foot in coming decades, and it will take better zoning, adaptable shorelines, and creative thinking to keep coastal cities like Boston livable. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. 45 degrees now. The forecast is coming up next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Volante Farms, wishing you happy holidays and reminding you to shop local for the holidays to support your community. Hours and offerings at VolanteFarms.com. Should have a clear and windy night tonight. Temperatures fall to about freezing. And then for tomorrow, generally sunny, windy, only about 39 for a high. Wednesday, starting off sunny, but then clouds should move in during the day. 45 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss.
This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists says it has documented the deaths of nearly 60 journalists and media workers since the start of the war. That's the highest number of deaths since the organization began gathering data more than three decades ago. NPR's Fatima Al-Kassab reports from London. This might be the last video I post. The words of Ayat Khadurra, a Palestinian journalist and podcaster. She posted this to her Instagram account just weeks before she was killed in an Israeli airstrike on her home in northern Gaza. She is one of several journalists killed since the start of the Israel-Gaza war. Of a total of 57 deaths, 50 have been Palestinian, four Israeli and three Lebanese. But the majority of those killed since then have been Palestinian journalists in Gaza. With no access into Gaza for foreign journalists until a limited number were allowed in with the Israeli army recently, it has fallen to Palestinian journalists on the ground to document the war, whilst also living through it. I'm playing two roles in this war, the professional one as a journalist and my one as a mother, and uh, I'm terrified of losing myself as a civilian, as a journalist. Like many others, Noor Swirki, a journalist and mother of two, was forced to evacuate her home in Gaza City and move south to Khan Yunus. She sent NPR voice messages from a shelter where she is now staying with her family. I'm always thinking about it. What if something happened to my children? So it's not an easy situation at all for us, not only for me, for us as journalists, males and females, and as mothers and fathers. Journalists like Swirki have continued to report, even as they have been displaced, lost friends, family and colleagues. This was the moment Salman al-Bashir tore off his protective gear while reporting live for the Palestinian Authority's TV channel. He had just found out his colleague had been killed. We are victims, live on air. It is only a matter of time until we are killed, he cries. The anchor in the studio can be seen crying too. There have been many moments like this. Al Jazeera correspondent Wa'il al-Dahdouh was broadcasting when he received the news that his entire family had been killed in an Israeli airstrike. And when he came back on air just days later, he told viewers that despite what he called his open wound, he felt it was his duty to carry on reporting. Indeed, just moments after he had learned the news, he did just that. The satellite channel had switched to footage of him kneeling over the body of his dead son. He was still wearing his protective press vest. I didn't feel safe at all with the breast vest. Journalist Noor Swirki says she sometimes feels at risk because of her press vest. As journalist, it could consider a part of the dangerous and the risk to, to wear this vest. She says she believes some of her colleagues have been targeted by Israel. Israel denies that and says it tries to avoid civilian casualties. There is no civilians at all in the Gaza Strip. And with these targets for our colleagues, we know we are not protected. We are facing the death every single moment in the, in the field. The Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ, says it has found evidence of the Israeli army targeting journalists in the past. 
IDF have not respected insignia in the past. Sharif Mansour is the coordinator for the committee's Middle East programme. A CPJ report published back in May showed that the majority of journalists killed by the Israeli military in the past 22 years had press insignia showing on their body and their vehicle. Mansour says the committee has documented similar things happening this time around. What we've seen in this war is a deadly pattern becoming more deadly. This pattern leaves Palestinian journalists in a precarious situation and leads to a chilling effect about covering IDF operations. It's a pattern, Mansour says, that has wider implications for the war. The lack of access into Gaza for the foreign press, as well as communication blackouts, mean the work of Palestinian journalists in Gaza is all the more vital. And attacks on journalism, both in Gaza and the wider region, are all the more troubling for those trying to understand the conflict. Fatima Al-Kassab, NPR News, London. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Sarah Lubarsky. Forty years ago, I was living in New York City with my fiancé and came home from work and realized very quickly that um, he was extremely ill. He was vomiting, he was slurring his words, and I knew that we had to get to the hospital. So I grabbed my purse and off we went to a hospital in the Lower East Side. We sat there for a couple of hours and it was pretty clear that nobody was going to pay attention to him. So off we went to another hospital. The same thing happened in the second hospital. So I decided that we needed to go and find a third. When we were getting ignored again and not being seen, I started to get very upset in the middle of the lobby. And all of a sudden, this person comes up to me and says, how can I help you? What's going on here? And it was a young doc. All I really remember is that he had dark hair and was wearing a white coat. And I explained to him what was happening with my fiance, David. And I was afraid that something really bad was happening. And he said, you know, I just got done with my neurological residency up at Lenox Hill Hospital. I'll take him in the back and look. Within two or three minutes, he came out and he said, you are absolutely right. Something is very seriously wrong. You need to get up to Lenox Hill Hospital. I've already called the doctor I did my residency with. He'll be waiting for you. And I started to cry and he said, my gosh, what's wrong? And I said, I don't have any more money. And without any hesitation, this young doc took a $20 bill out of his wallet walked us out to the curb, shoved us into a cab and said, get up to Lenox Hill Hospital and they'll take care of you. We get up there. David did have a bleed on the brain. And luckily for us, David made a full recovery. So if I were to see my unsung hero, I would probably cry first. Then I would give him a big hug and then I would repay him the $20 he so graciously gave me 40 years ago. 
Sarah Lubarski lives in Fairfield, Connecticut. Next year, she and David will celebrate their 40th wedding anniversary. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Subaru. The Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com slash share. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There was a bumper crop of apples across the country this year, and now processors have too many to handle. With an oversupplied market, growers are now faced with an economic dilemma. Should they pay workers to pick their apples or simply leave them to rot? Alan Heenich went to West Virginia, where a dozen growers got last-minute support from the federal government to rescue their apples for charity. getting late in the harvest season here in Berkeley County, West Virginia, and Carla Kitchen's team is in the process of handpicking nearly half a million pounds of apples. In a normal year, Carla would sell to processors that make applesauce, concentrate, and other products, but this year was different. Imagine 80% of your income is sitting on the trees and the processor tells you they don't want them. So what do you do? For the first time in 36 years, Carla had nowhere to sell the bulk of her harvest. It could have been the end of her business, and she wasn't alone. This is not only a West Virginia problem this year. It's a Maryland problem. It's a Virginia. It's a North Carolina problem. Everybody on the East Coast. Due to an excess supply of apples nationwide, growers this year were faced with a tough economic decision. Do we pay the labor to get these apples off the tree, or do we let them drop? That's Christopher Gerlach, Director of Industry Analytics at U.S. Apple. He says the surplus this year was caused by many factors fewer exports, several years of bumper crops, and oversupplied juice processors that couldn't take any more apples. Last year was so good that the price went down on processors and they said, let's buy while the buying's good. You know, these processors basically filled up their storage warehouses. It's just the market. While many growers in neighboring states left their apples to drop, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia got the USDA to step into his state, which only makes up 1% of the national market. The government bought $10 million worth of apples from a dozen West Virginia growers. Those apples were then donated to hunger-fighting charities across the country, from South Carolina and Michigan all the way out to the Navajo Nation. A nonprofit called the FarmLink Project took care of more than half the surplus, 10 million pounds of apples filling nearly 300 trucks. One of these trucks loads up at Timber Ridge Fruit Farm in West Virginia. Kate Nelson from the FarmLink Project is watching with her team. I think we started moving apples in mid-September, and now it's November, which might be the biggest food rescue in a small period that we've ever seen. Cordell Watt is a third-generation owner of the orchard. The program with FarmLink has really taken care of the fruit in, in West Virginia. Some of that fruit from Timber Ridge is now piling up at the So What Else Food Pantry in Bethesda, Maryland. I'm just bewildered. Emmanuel Ibanez and the other volunteers are picking through crates, bagging fresh apples into family-sized loads. We have a warehouse full of apples and I can barely walk through it. People are getting tired of apples at this point. It's not bad. In fact, it's great, says the pantry's executive director, Megan Joe. My coworkers are like, Megan, do we really need this many? I'm like, yes. <laughs> she says it's the largest shipment of produce they've ever distributed. 10 truckloads over the span of three weeks. 
and they had no trouble getting rid of the fresh apples. The growing prices in the grocery stores are really tough for a lot of families, and it's honestly gotten worse since, since COVID. Following West Virginia's rescue program, the USDA announced an additional $100 million purchase to relieve the apple surplus in other states around the country. This is the largest government buy of apples and apple products to date. But with the harvest window coming to an end, many growers have already left their apples to drop and rot. For NPR News, I'm Alan Hinich in Inwood, West Virginia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 15 minutes, life after captivity in Gaza. We'll learn about the reintegration of hostages being released to Israel. And tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR, a criminology professor on the uptick in hate crimes since the Israel-Hamas conflict began. Also, we'll remember Marty Croft, the creator of the iconic children's TV shows, including H.R. Puffin Stuff. Listen again tomorrow morning. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. 46 degrees now in the Boston area should fall to about freezing overnight tonight, a gusty wind. Tomorrow should be sunny and cooler than today has been, about 40 degrees for a high. If you woke up before 7.15 this morning, you may have seen the gorgeous full moon hanging in the sky. Tonight you get to see it again, just a tiny bit tinier. It's known as the beaver moon. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Giving Tuesday is about turning your modest contribution into something much bigger. I'm Rupa Shinoy. When you give to WBUR, we'll turn your support into journalism that has real and meaningful impact for millions of listeners and readers across Boston and beyond. Give now to get in on our Giving Tuesday match. Some members of our Murrow Society gave their money to make your support of WBUR 50% bigger. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. On a Monday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. A night at the opera might mean a fancy theater, a cast of booming voices, songs in Italian or French or English. But what about the second most spoken language in the U.S.? Spanish has long been underrepresented in the world of opera. NPR's Luis Treas brings us the story of a recent premiere that is bucking that trend. Is it good? Jorge Sunio's connection to the opera is all about proximity. Sunio has served coffee and quesadillas out of his tightly packed pushcart for the past 15 years. It's parked just a block away from Lincoln Center, home of the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. I could say like 70% of the people who come here, they speak Spanish. Up on the Met stage, it's a different story. There hasn't been an opera in Spanish there in almost a hundred years. Until now.
Florencia in el Amazonas premiered at the Met recently. Set in the early 20th century, the story follows Florencia Grimaldi, a famous soprano who has conquered European audiences with the power of her voice. In this new staging, Eileen Perez takes on the title role. She's a mysterious woman, an Amazonica woman who has been given a gift of singing, realizing that she got caught up in the journey and never went back home. Florencia split up with the love of her life on her way to stardom, and now she's back in South America trying to recapture what she lost. It's a tropical journey that takes her down the Amazon River on a steamship. Along the way, she meets characters trying to rekindle a fading sense of love while other passengers are searching for their true desire. The project originally came together in the mid-90s. It was a vision driven by Mexican composer Daniel Catán. Daniel was completely obsessed to put our language in another level, to put our music, our cultural world in operas. Marcela Fuentes Berain was also part of the creative team. She's a Mexican screenwriter, a craft she learned from Gabriel García Márquez, the Nobel Prize winner from Colombia. It was García Márquez who approached her with the idea of writing an opera inspired by his novels. Her first reaction? An opera? How can I do that? And I said, so sorry. No, I, I, I cannot write an opera. And he said, yes, you can. I will teach you how. Okay. García Márquez brought Catán and Fuentes Berain together, and they dove into the project wanting to capture the way Spanish is spoken in Latin America, except for one word. Yoruras. It comes up in a key moment in the story, as the steamship that Florencia is traveling in is swept and shaken by a storm. A character called Rio Lobo is the spirit of the river, and he tries to calm the waters as he sings. Over the years, Florencia en el Amazonas has been staged in the U.S., South America, Europe, and Fuentes Berain says that each time she gets the same question from directors. Marcela, what's that? You know, Yoruras, I looked it up. Soprano Eileen Perez was also curious. I don't know if it exists. Fuentes Berain made it up, but not before getting her mentor's blessing. And I said, Gabito, I invented this word. Is it all right? Yes, you invent whatever you want. In September of this year, a full production of Florencia was staged in Mexico City for the first time. It served as a posthumous tribute for Catan and Garcia Marquez, who both died several years before. And now Florencia en el Amazonas has made its way to the Met. This is Eileen Perez's first time in the role, and it gives her a rare chance to sing in Spanish. As the bilingual daughter of two Mexican immigrants, she learned early on that language had the power to shape her experience and her voice. In my youth, my mom would be very hurt that she thought I was yelling or talking back to her. But actually, I was taking the tone of English and using that in Spanish. So it sounds brusque. It sounds brusco. You know, it sounds like you're yelling at someone. Paris has had a distinguished career singing classics, mainly in Italian and French, but it's different this time. There's a language 
barrier sometimes for new opera composers to have that platform because you have to have a sense that it's going to sell and it's going to connect. And how do you know until you invest in it? You don't. So as we continue into this 21st century, I think that we're realizing that in an opera repertory house, we're learning how enriched we all become when we do something new. As she steps onto the stage to play a famous soprano trying to find a way back home, she's also finding a new sense of belonging. When you speak your native tongue, you feel, I feel like my whole sense of self shifts and I feel anchored in knowing who I am, my value. Outside Lincoln Center, the feeling described by Perez resonates deep within Jorge Suño's Pushcart. I think a lot of the community who speak Spanish or people from South America, they never lose the hope you want to come back to your country because oh, you still love your country. He says that the important thing for him and for so many of his customers is to keep the connection between language and identity alive. Luis Trelles, NPR News. Florencia in El Amazonas is playing at the Metropolitan Opera through December 14th. It will be broadcast live in HD in movie theaters throughout the country on December 9th. Musician John Baptiste and his wife, Suleika Jawad, experienced ups and downs these past few years. As Baptiste's career was taking off with Grammy wins and acclaim, Jawad was recovering from leukemia. Their experience is the basis of a new documentary, American Symphony. Hear more about the couple and the documentary on the next morning edition. You can listen on the radio or online or on your smart speaker. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment, viking.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Boston Bruins are in Ohio to take on the Columbus Blue Jackets tonight. Celtics have the night off. They will host the Chicago Bulls tomorrow. This is WBUR, 45 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.59. And Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, dedicated to ocean research, technology, and education. Currently seeking innovators, engineers, and explorers to help advance ocean science and technology for the global good. Discover career opportunities in your field at whoi.edu team. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Two relatives of Anita men who were kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th are now back in Israel. They're among the hostages released today. Coming up, what happens to them and the dozens of others who've been sent back to Israel? You come back to a different picture of what your life is and you really do need to become accustomed to and create your new normal. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, we hear about the Hamas leader believed to have masterminded the October 7th attacks on Israel and who led Hamas negotiations on the hostages. And Americans say they worry about the economy, but the latest numbers say otherwise, as shopping over the Thanksgiving weekend paves the way for a record holiday season. It's 5.01, news headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Even as a temporary ceasefire has been extended for two more days in Gaza, more hostages are being freed today. NPR's Brian Mann is in Tel Aviv and confirms 11 Israelis have left Gaza. This first prisoner exchange agreement was for four days and that ends tonight. So this new deal really hammered out at the very last minute will stretch the ceasefire another two days was negotiated with the help of officials in Egypt, Qatar, and the U.S. And the framework appears to be that each additional day of the pause, Hamas will release roughly another 10 Israeli hostages. Israeli officials have signaled a willingness to release three Palestinian prisoners for every Israeli hostage that's let go. Again, we're waiting to see details of that confirmed by Israel. NPR's Brian Mann in Tel Aviv. There have also been releases of other hostages in exchange for the freeing of Palestinians being held in Israel over the past several days. A suspect is being charged in the shooting of three young men of Palestinian descent in Vermont. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the FBI is investigating whether it's a hate crime. Vermont Public's Brittany Patterson reports Jason Eaton appeared in court from jail by video today. Eaton is charged with three counts of attempted murder and is being held without bail. Prosecutors say Eaton shot the three 20-year-old college students who were walking to a family dinner on Saturday night near the University of Vermont. The students attend Brown University, Haverford College, and Trinity College. Two of them were wearing traditional Palestinian headscarves when they were shot. Police detained Eaton Sunday after a search of his property. He has pleaded not guilty. 
For NPR News, I'm Brittany Patterson in Burlington, Vermont. U.S. Customs and Border Protection has shut down or restricted vehicle traffic at two international bridges along the southern border. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila reports the closures are linked to an influx of migrants in Texas and Arizona. Customs and Border Protection says there will be no vehicle traffic allowed across one international bridge in Eagle Pass, Texas. The agency will also reduce vehicle traffic in Lukeville, Arizona. CBP says it is rerouting personnel from the bridges to process migrants who have crossed into the U.S. without an asylum appointment. The agency says the move is in response to more migrants arriving in both states. Officials attribute the rise in border crossings to disinformation smugglers have spread among hopeful migrants. CBP did not say when the bridge's operations would resume as normal. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila in McAllen, Texas. Retailers dealt with in-store crowds last week on Black Friday, but today is an equally important shopping day, except the crowds are online. term Cyber Monday, coined back in 2005 by the National Retail Federation, continues to be the biggest online shopping day of the year. Adobe Analytics, which tracks consumer spending online, estimates shoppers will spend between 12 and $12.4 billion. Stocks were lower on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two relatives of Anita Mann are back home in Israel today after they were kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th. 16-year-old Sahar and 12-year-old Erez Calderon were two of the 11 hostages to be released today. Their father is still being held captive. Two other relatives of Needham's Jason Greenberg were found dead at the Gaza border last month. Braintree officials are sharing their plan to comply with a new state zoning law just a few weeks before the deadline. The law will require communities serviced by the MBTA to create multifamily housing zones near the transit lines. Braintree is serviced by the red line and the commuter rail. Communities that don't comply with the law risk losing out on millions in state grant money or facing legal action. Braintree City Council and the Planning Board still have to review the plan before the end of the year. A new study from Boston University School of Medicine finds unequal treatment of patients who get breast cancer screenings. The research focused on conversations around breast density. About 40 to 50 percent of women have dense breasts, meaning more fibrous tissue. Density can increase the risk of getting breast cancer and make it harder for some mammograms to find it. The study says Asian and Hispanic women, as well as women with lower literacy levels, reported their doctors did not ask them about their concerns as frequently as they did women from other backgrounds. BU's Dr. Nancy Cresson conducted the study. Those women are not necessarily getting the conversations they need and want, and that's that's important to address because ultimately what we want to do is reduce breast cancer mortality and screening is one way to do that. The study surveyed about 2,300 women. The Food and Drug Administration will require doctors to notify women about their breast density starting late next year. A celebration of life begins at this hour for the New Hampshire security officer who died on the job earlier this month. 63-year-old Bradley Haas was shot and killed while he worked at a New Hampshire hospital in Concord. The man suspected of shooting Haas was killed by a state trooper shortly afterward. Officials have not yet shared a motive in the case. Forecast 44 degrees now. Temperatures heading downward. Winds picking up for the nighttime. Tomorrow should be sunny and cooler than today was. About 40 for a high. Still windy, though. By Wednesday, we should see sunshine, but then lots of clouds as the day progresses. Still about 40 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Dozens of hostages who had been detained in Gaza for almost two months are now free. They're being reunited with loved ones and they're getting the physical care that they need. But what happens to them? Once the celebrations and reunions are over and it's time to return to some semblance of a normal life. Well, we're going to talk about that now with Liz Cathcart. She's the executive director of Hostage U.S., a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting hostages and their families during and after captivity. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is a a very important discussion to have and to be focusing on the human aspect of kidnapping and the release. Absolutely. Before we get into this conversation, though, I just want to make it clear that you cannot comment on any of the specific cases that you're working on. Is that right? That's right. And I really appreciate that. And it's, you know, due to the confidential nature of our work and just making sure that we are here solely for the families and the support so we don't comment on whether or not we support specific cases. Understandable. So to make it clear, your group works with these families and these hostages throughout from captivity to release to recovery. And let me just ask you, as you've been watching these women and children getting released by Hamas, can you just tell me what is the very first thing that they need before anything else can happen? The the first thing we always say is your physical health. Because without the physical health checks and making sure that your physical health is, you know, up to par, you're not able to then take the next steps to recovery and reintegration. And I understand that malnutrition is something that you see a lot. And, you know, in reading about some of these people who have been released over the last few days, their family members are reporting that they have lost significant amounts of weight just in the seven weeks or so that they've been held hostage. Is that something you see quite often? It is. Unfortunately, it's it's incredibly common for, you know, a multitude of reasons. And, um, you know, we, we manage cases of folks who are held for days, months, years, and across the board, uh, there, there are, you know, malnutrition issues, whether that's not getting enough food or not enough nutritious food, or because of the stress of being held, your body is unable to, you know, retain or, or keep down food. And that could be an issue as well. Right. Well, once the physical needs are largely taken care of and the immediate mundane tasks are attended to, I know that you focus on mental health. What kinds of challenges are common in situations Mm -hmm. like this? And what kind of support do organizations like yours try to provide? Yeah, absolutely. In our experience at at Hostage U.S., having supported so many of, of the Americans over the years, is that one of the most important skills that former captives can learn are resilience skills uh, and coping skills to cope with what will be their new normal. So far, we've been talking mostly about the people who have been held hostage, but how does all of what affects them ripple out and affect the families of them? Like, what have you seen in the past? It, it ripples out pretty significantly, right? Because as these families fight for two months trying to get their loved ones home, they're used to a constant level of stress. And now their loved ones are released and it is such a happy and joyous moment. But then the families need to start to learn how to take care of themselves, how to step back, take a breather from a two-month marathon and now there's just, their focus entirely shifts to making sure that their loved one is okay. And what I always you know, encourage families to do when their loved one gets home is to focus on yourself too. 
because it's so important that the families are mentally healthy, that they're fed, that they have energy, because if they don't, they're not going to be able to support their family member. They're not going to be able to support the captive who comes home. That saying about put on your oxygen mask first before you can put it on for others. Absolutely. Finally, is there any individual or family that you tell people about how they weathered this experience to give people hope? The best story of hope that we can give is that the majority, the vast majority of cases that we deal with end with a family who is whole again, who recognizes that they went through an incredibly traumatic experience and they are built stronger and have learned coping mechanisms that they can apply to many different scenarios in their lives. And we feel very, very humbled and also proud to be part of those steps. Liz Cathcart is the executive director of Hostage U.S., an organization dedicated to supporting families and individuals experiencing detention. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. The release of hostages in Gaza could not have happened without the approval of one secretive man, Yahya Senwar. He's the head of Hamas in Gaza. NPR's Daniel Estrin met the Hamas leader at press conferences in recent years, and he has this report on who the Hamas leader is and how the hostage release fits into his war strategy. Yahya Sinwar earned a nickname among Palestinians, the Butcher of Khan Yunus. It's where he grew up in southern Gaza. His role in Hamas for years was to help root out suspected Palestinian informants, spies for Israel. He was imprisoned in Israel on four life sentences, accused of playing a role in killing Israeli soldiers and Palestinian informants. He spent 22 years in Israeli prisons with many fellow Palestinian prisoners like Esmat Mansour. He have uh, so many secrets. Mansour remembers Sinwar the prisoner as having a small team of confidants who would smuggle cell phones into prison and catch Palestinian inmates serving as informants for Israel. Did he ever find spies in jail? So many spies. So many spies, he says. When Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit was captured by Hamas and held hostage in Gaza for five years, the man who guarded the captive soldier was none other than Sinwar's own brother, Mohammed. In 2011, Hamas freed the captive soldier in exchange for more than a 1,000 Palestinian prisoners, and Sinwar's brother made sure Sinwar was among them. When his brother have a power to decide who can release or not, all the prisoners look at him as a man who can decide about their life. That VIP status in prison and his release helped him rise in the ranks to lead Hamas in Gaza. Over the years, the security-conscious Sinwar rarely appeared in public, but he did hold press conferences with the foreign press in 2018 and in 2021, when there were bloody rounds of conflict between Gaza and Israel. Assalamu alaikum. In 2018, Sinwar sat at a table. He spoke to the assembled journalists and into the NPR microphone. He's short and wiry, with cropped, mostly white hair. I asked him about the subject of Israeli captives. At the time, Hamas was holding two Israeli citizens and the bodies of two Israeli soldiers. He said it was a confidential file he wasn't prepared to talk about. Hamas is still holding them. He welcomed the visiting press. He 
He said the press played an important role for the Palestinian cause. At the time, Hamas was encouraging violent protests along the Israeli border of the blockaded Gaza Strip. He said it was a strategy he learned from his hunger strikes in prison. He said Palestinians were protesting their jailers, as it were, for improved conditions in Gaza. The strategy seemed to work. Israel gave Gaza economic incentives, coveted Israeli work permits for thousands of Gaza laborers. Eyal Hulata, who served as Israel's national security advisor last year, thought this brought Israel some quiet on the Gaza border. Uh, I don't know. I thought we had an understanding uh, what Sinar thinking was, and this was so wrong. Israel was shocked on October 7th, when Hamas fighters stormed the border, killed about 1,200 people, and dragged back to Gaza more than 200 captives. David Meidan, the Israeli negotiator who approved Sinwar's release from prison in the 2011 exchange, says Sinwar's strategy with the October 7th attack was similar. First of all, to uh, to capture maximum uh, hostages to and to use them as a tool to release his friends. His friends he spent years with behind bars in Israel. He didn't yet secure their release, but Israel did agree to free more recently arrested Palestinian prisoners in exchange for Hamas releasing some of its Israeli hostages. And both sides agreed to a short ceasefire. Maidan says it helps Sinwar buy time. Now, if it's time now, the time will help him to survive. Maidan says the more hostages Sinwar releases day by day, the longer the ceasefire will last. And that can help Hamas fighters regroup and maybe international pressure will mount against Israel resuming its military assault. But Israel says this ceasefire will only last a maximum of 10 days before it resumes its military campaign. Sinwar will still likely hold on to Israeli captives as a bargaining chip for his bigger goal, to secure the release of all Palestinian prisoners in Israel. Sinwar's former prison mate, Esmat Mansour. After the war, when they end the war, uh, they will uh, make uh, negotiations to release the, all the prisoners, and then it will be the biggest picture of victory in Palestinian history. After the last Israel-Hamas war two years ago, Sinwar dared Israel to assassinate him and walked openly in the streets of Gaza. Today, Sinwar is presumed to be hiding in one of Hamas's underground bunkers in Gaza. Israel has changed its strategy. Israel says Hamas can no longer be in charge of Gaza, and Sinwar is on its hit list. The future of Hamas largely depends on whether Sinwar survives this war. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us on this Monday afternoon here at 90.9 WBUR. In about 15 minutes, the 48-year-old suspect in the shooting of three Palestinian college students who were visiting a friend in Burlington, Vermont, over the weekend entered a not guilty plea today. The students are all hospitalized. We'll have the latest on the case coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jose Mateo Ballet Theater. Rediscover the magic of the Nutcracker at the Strand in Dorchester starts December 9th. Tickets from $25. 
BalletTheater.org. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. A four-week rally for the Dow came to an abrupt end today. The Dow lost nearly two-tenths of a percent. S&P lost exactly two-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq fell less than one-tenth of a percent. Shares of the Bedford-based company iRobot fell 17 percent today. iRobot makes the Roomba robotic vacuum. The loss comes as European regulators express concern that Amazon's proposed $1.7 billion acquisition of iRobot might stifle competition. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 44 degrees now in the Boston area. Temperatures falling fast should make it all the way down to about freezing overnight tonight. A gusty wind, clear skies. Nice for viewing the full beaver moon tonight. Tomorrow should be sunny and cooler than today's been. About 40 for a high, still windy. Wednesday, we should see sunshine, but more clouds as the day progresses. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Americans say they worry about the economy, but they are really shopping. The busiest retail weekend of the year ends today, and that is paving the way for a record holiday season. What does this all tell us about the state of the American shopper? NPR's Alina Seljuk is here in studio to explain. Hi. Hello, hello. All right, Alina, what did we learn about the state of the economy over Black Friday and today on Cyber Monday? Well, let me tell you about a little microcosm that I personally witnessed. I went to two outlet malls in Eastern Maryland on Black Friday, and I waited more than 20 minutes just to park. Oh, There were roadblocks diverting traffic. Um, there were people walking for like a mile on foot with their shopping bags to get to their cars. It was mayhem at Old, old Navy. This sounds wild. It does not sound particularly <laughs> fun. Go on. Um, so... To summarize, Americans might say they're really anxious, but they are splurging for the holidays. Um, We have been seeing this for over a year now. People will say they are concerned about the economy broadly, but then they're still going on trips and going out to eat individually. And we are spending more on holiday gifts. We don't have all the data for the long weekend yet, but we know Black Friday has already set a record on top of last year's record. Just online, people spent $9.8 billion on Black Friday, which is more than last holiday. Um, And that's according to Adobe Analytics. Uh, It's a firm that tracks online transactions. And the firm is forecasting another $10 billion in spending for Cyber Monday, also more than last year. 
Add in all the offline spending, and we are on track for record holiday season again. Okay. So how well, then, are people's budgets prepared for all of the spending that we seem to be doing? Yeah, people are definitely price conscious. I actually think that's part of the reason why Black Friday and Cyber Monday are so big this year. People are hunting for bargains, and so a lot of folks, I think, waited for these big discounts, and these are best prices of the year. We're also swiping credit cards more. We paid them off during pandemic lockdowns, then we started charging them again, and now more people are falling behind on their credit card bills. Though economists do say credit card debt is still pretty low by historic standards. Right. And I mean, I'm thinking here, many folks like me are once again pacing those student loan payments that started back up. And with Mm -hmm. inflation, prices for everything are higher. How does that all add up to us getting a record shopping season? Yes. Well, to note, some prices are coming down. uh, But overall, economists will point to one really powerful thing, and that is people have jobs. Here's what I heard from Michelle Meyer, who is the chief economist for North America at the MasterCard Economics Institute. What's happening in the labor market? Absolutely the number one dynamic, because if people are employed and they believe they'll continue to have their job, they'll have income creation. That's the biggest driver for spending. So unemployment has been near record lows. People might feel anxious, but companies are hiring and wages have been growing. And that's big. As a nation, we are getting paid more. And Meyer says our raises are actually outpacing price increases, which is something new this holiday season compared to last. Okay, Alina, so is the takeaway here that we all say we're worried, but we're actually secret optimists? Uh, I think old habits, die hard, is another (laughs) one. The word that's been coming up talking with economists is a reset, like we're resetting to a version of an even keel after the wild swings of the pandemic economy and, you know, sitting in traffic jams and parking lots in front of stores. (laughs) Indeed. NPR's Alina Seljuk, thank you. Thank you. Some 30,000 workers from Thailand were in Israel when Hamas launched its October 7th attack. Hamas militants killed 39 Thais and took more than two dozen hostage. Now at least 17 of those Thai hostages have been released as part of the deal between Israel and Hamas. NPR's Michael Sullivan has more. For seven weeks, Tipawan Pongkong feared the worst. She'd heard nothing from her husband, Mongkong who worked on a farm near the border since the Hamas attacks. And she'd seen no photos or videos circulating on social media, as other Thai families had, proving he'd been taken alive. Then at 2 o'clock Saturday morning, her phone rang. It was one of her husband's friends in Israel. My heart was shaking so much. I couldn't do anything. Then he told me that my husband has already been released. He also sent a picture for me to look at. I clicked to look and I told him, yes, it really is my husband. She spoke to him briefly by phone on Sunday. He said he was safe not to worry, but said he didn't know when he'd be coming home. He's been in Israel for about three years picking tomatoes, making the equivalent of about $1,500 a month, almost all of which, she says, he sent home to support her and their two daughters. That's about five times what most Thais from the impoverished Northeast make in a month, but she says he better not even think about going back to work in Israel. I won't let him go. I don't know if he would want to or not, but 
If he asks me, I will tell him. I will not allow it. When the war began, Thailand's government urged its citizens to come home, and roughly 8,000 did on repatriation flights. 27-year-old Surat Pumbut, also a tomato picker, was one of them. The fighting never reached his farm, though he could hear it, and he was torn about leaving. I had just gotten there, and it was very hard to make a decision, he says. But my family kept telling me to come back home. They were worried, so finally, he says, I decided to come home for them. But here's the thing. He wants to go back after the war is over. Here in Sarin, I was earning about 330 baht a day, he says, pumping gas. That's less than $300 a month, compared to the $1,500 a month he was making in Israel. His biggest worry? That his job won't be there when he tries to go back that it will have been filled by someone else from somewhere else, and he'll have no way to pay off his family's debt. <laughs> debt and dreams are what send most Thai workers to Israel, like Gong Se Lao, one of those still missing. I visited his wife in rural Chiang Rai two weeks ago for NPR's Morning Edition, where she told me of his plan to use the money he earned to pay off his car loan and other debts racked up by his extended family, who he also tried to support after his father died. But his wife, Suntari, said he also had a bigger goal in mind. Gong said, once he paid off the debts, he would save money for another year. Then the year after, we would be able to start building a house. That dream is now on hold, as she sits in her mother's one-room dirt floor house, watching as other Thai hostages get released, but not her husband. She saw a video of him being taken by militants, and she's convinced he's still alive. But with each release, with no gong, that belief is being sorely tested. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Chiang Rai. NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, smog in New Delhi is so bad that one study suggests residents lose between 8 and 11 years of life from inhaling it. Politicians are trading blame. That story is coming up on WBUR. Comedian Bethany Van Delft hosts the Moth Story Slam on Tuesday, December 12th at City Space. Tell a story based on the theme home or just come and enjoy the show. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. 44 degrees in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business. Powering Possibilities, and New Art Center in Newton. With art classes for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this winter at newartcenter.org. Giving Tuesday is about stepping back from the commercialism of the holidays. It's about giving back to organizations that give so much to us and our communities. I'm Tiziana Deering. Support WBUR now and get in on our Giving Tuesday match. Some members of our Moreau Society gave their money to make your support of WBUR 50% bigger. Get in on our Giving Tuesday match at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks.
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Relatives of three newly released Israeli hostages are here in the U.S. calling for continued diplomatic pressure on Hamas. NPR's Tovia Smith says the deal to release hostages has been extended for another two days. Roni Raviv planned her trip, never imagining three of her relatives would be freed just days before arriving. Her cousin, nine-year-old Ohad Munder Zichri, along with his mother Karen and grandmother Ruti, were all released, but Ruti's 78-year-old husband, Avram, was not. Ruti remains hospitalized, Raviv says, and the trauma has clearly changed Ohad. You can definitely see that he's been through a lot. He saw things that no one should see and especially not kids, and he'd been through hell. Raviv says the hostages often went hungry and the psychological torment continued to the very end. As they left Gaza, crowds shouted and pounded on their vehicle, leaving them terrified they'd be recaptured. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Boston. In a rare public declaration, Ukraine's military intelligence agency says it hacked Russia's civil aviation agency. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has more. Ukrainian intelligence agencies have started to step out of the shadows in recent weeks. First, the cyber division of Ukraine's counterintelligence agency, the SBU, confirmed it helped two hacktivist organizations target Russia's Alpha Bank. Now, Ukraine's military intelligence agency says it breached the federal agency in Russia responsible for flight safety and regulation. In a rare press release, the agency shared screenshots of documents that detail, for example, 150 cases of aircraft technical malfunctions in 2023. The Russian Aviation Agency has not commented on the alleged breach. However, the documents, if real, paint a picture of a collapsing civil aviation industry exacerbated by sanctions. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you ride the MBTA Green Line, you'll likely run into some delays tonight. Buses will replace Green Line service on the Union Square and Medford branches of the Green Line extension from 845 tonight through the end of service. Buses will be offered until December 10th. They'll also provide service on the Green Line between some downtown stops on all four branches for the next week. The changes will allow crews to replace or repair tracks and help alleviate some slow zones. Boston has announced its newest rates for residents enrolled in the city's Community Choice Electricity Program. Under the Municipal Energy Agreement, the city negotiates electricity rates on behalf of residents in the program. The city says those residents can expect to save about $15 per month compared to the basic rate at Eversource. The new rates go into effect next month. A Cambridge City Council committee will vote tomorrow on whether to ban gas-powered leaf blowers. If the committee supports the ban, the City Council could decide the issue next month. Cities and towns including Lexington, Arlington, Dedham and Belmont already have similar bans, in part because of the noise the blowers make. Patricia Nolan is a Cambridge City Councillor. She supports the ordinance and says the bans in nearby communities help push this one. Many residents started wondering, why isn't Cambridge doing this? Why aren't we phasing in a ban given the serious emission pollution that happens and the worker health and safety? If the city council approves it, the ban on gas-powered leaf blowers for residential use would start in 2025. A wake is underway for political strategist John Walsh. The 65-year-old died earlier this month from stomach cancer. Walsh is credited with helping get Deval Patrick elected in 2006 as the first black governor of Massachusetts. A celebration of life will be held tomorrow for Walsh at Fennel Hall in Boston. The forecast is ahead.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. A beautiful full moon tonight, but bundle up if you go out to see it. Tonight should be windy and cold, down around freezing. Tomorrow high is only about 40 degrees with lots of sunshine. 44 now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Breadbox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard. Starring Grant Chester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A Burlington, Vermont man pleaded not guilty today to attempted murder charges in a weekend shooting of three college students of Palestinian descent. The students were spending the Thanksgiving holiday in Burlington when a white man confronted them with a handgun and shot them. There has been a sharp rise in threats and incidents against Jewish and Muslim communities around the U.S. since the Israel-Hamas war began. Reporter Liam Elder Connors with Vermont Public is on this story. Hey there, Liam. Hi. Hi. So the victims in this shooting, it was we mentioned three students, three 20-year-old college students. What more do we know about them? Well, the three have been friends for a long time. They attended the Ramallah Friends School, which is a private Quaker school in the West Bank. They did Model UN together. And now they're all attending colleges in the U.S. in different states. Hashem Awatani is at Brown University. He's studying math and archaeology. Kanan Abdullah Hamid is at Haverford College studying biology. He also runs track. His uncle said Abdullah Hamid grew up in the West Bank, and his family thought sending him here to the U.S. would be safer than staying in the occupied West Bank. And then the final victim is Tassin Ahmed, who goes to Trinity College. He's studying math. He's a pre-med student and recently became a qualified EMT. And like you mentioned, all three were visiting Burlington for the Thanksgiving holiday. They're staying with Awatani's uncle, Rich Price, who lives in Burlington. And Price said at a press conference today that the shooting was incredibly distressing. To have them come stay with me for Thanksgiving and have something like this happen speaks to the level of civic vitriol, speaks to the level of hatred that exists in some corners of this country. It speaks to a sickness of gun violence that exists in this country. Price said that Saturday night, the three of them had been bowling at a birthday party for Price's twin eight-year-olds. Do we know exactly what happened on Saturday? What details are out there? So after getting back from bowling, the three young men were walking down a residential street, and two of them were wearing kafiyas, that's a traditional Palestinian scarf, and the three were speaking a mix of English and Arabic. 
Police say while they were walking, they were allegedly confronted by suspect Jason Eaton. The victims later told police that without saying a word, Eaton pulled out a gun and fired at least four rounds, hitting all three of the young men. Eaton was arrested on Sunday as law enforcement officials were canvassing the area. When they searched his home, they found a pistol that fired the same caliber bullets, and they also found the same brand of bullets that had been as the ones that had been used in the shooting. And how are they doing, the victims? Well, all three are hospitalized in the ICU still. Um, One's in serious condition. Awatani appears to have the most serious injury. His mother told NPR that the bullet is lodged in his spine and that he can't move his legs and that it's unlikely he'll be able to walk again. Okay. You mentioned the suspect uh, has been charged. It's three counts of attempted murder. He has not been charged with hate crimes, but just briefly, Liam, that is still on the table? Yeah, the county prosecutor says there's not enough evidence for a hate crime enhancement, but has called it a, quote, hateful act and said the investigation will continue. Federal officials are also investigating possible hate crimes, and the U.S. attorney said that his office will follow the facts where they lead. Vermont Public Radio's Liam Elder Connors, thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. India has some of the world's worst air pollution, and nowhere is that felt more keenly than in the capital, New Delhi. There, the air is so toxic that one recent study estimated residents are losing years of life just by breathing it in. NPR's Dia Hadid reports. A vendor hawks flutes near the India Gate in the center of New Delhi. It's a giant arch that towers over a sweeping pedestrian boulevard. It's normally crowded, but the day we go in November, visitors are sparse. And from a dozen feet away, the India Gate is just an outline in the haze of grey, smudgy smog. According to my air quality app, the pollution is so bad, people should stay indoors. It's not an option for vendor Gajendra Kohli. He blows cascades of bubbles, trying to lure kids to buy his bubble-blowing kits. He says the air makes him sick. It makes the kids sick too. A few miles away at the Safdarjung Hospital, we meet some of those children. Razia Begum waits for a doctor to see her three children. They've all got chesty coughs. She says it could be the cold or the pollution. But she says she's sure if the air was cleaner, her kids wouldn't get so sick. For now, the pollution keeps her running to the hospitals. And the immediate impact on children is just one way air pollution is harmful. Krista Hassenkoff is from the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. She says the worst impacts are from the tiny particles in smog. You breathe them in, they go into not just your lungs, but they can go into your bloodstream and all over your body and act as a toxin. So it causes strokes and heart attacks. It can cause even things like cognitive decline and certainly issues with uh, fertility. The pollution in New Delhi is a brew of emissions from vehicles, industry, construction dust, and farmers torching their ploughed fields to make way for new planting. In the cooler seasons, when the wind dies down, it builds up and becomes this visible, thick soup. In November, it got so bad, schools shut for nearly 15 days. And yet, the government in New Delhi has been trying to curb air pollution here for years. It's not that nothing has happened. Okay, several things have happened and we've seen the results of it. And yet, it's not enough at all. Anomita Roy Chaudhry is a prominent clean air campaigner. She says 
Over the years, the government has shuttered four coal power plants. It's made large industrial units switch to natural gas. They're electrifying their bus fleet. Residents get cash if they buy EVs. As of today, roughly about 12% of the new vehicles sold in Delhi are electric vehicles. And she says all those efforts have curbed air pollution, but... All of that's getting overwhelmed and swamped. Swamped by how fast the city is growing. Within three years, New Delhi's urban population is expected to reach 40 million people. That's the population of California. And the city's sprawl reaches out so far that many residents don't actually live in the city's limits. They're technically residents of three neighboring states. And activists say those states and the federal government are taking action, but it's not nearly enough to tackle the problem. Consider electricity. Nearly three quarters of all power in India is generated from coal, a key pollutant. And so New Delhi's residents pay the price. Like the daughters of Paravin Kandari, a clean air activist. They've never seen a blue sky. You know, the first drawing that everyone makes is like some mountain, a sun and the blue sky. They've never seen that sky in New Delhi. And on a busy road, Baljeet Singh says he's recently learned that pollution is a danger. He's about to get on a motorbike. He wraps a handkerchief around his face to keep himself safe from pollution. He laughs and asks, do you have a better idea? Dear Hadid, NPR News, New Delhi. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Research shows that early school start times are bad for teenagers' mental and physical health, so bad that California has decreed high schools cannot start before 8.30. Florida passed a similar law this year. Whereas in Nashville, most public high schools start at 7.05 in the morning. That is among the earliest start times in the country. Catherine Sweeney of Nashville Public Radio reports a new mayor wants to change things. Turns out it's not that easy. Most teenagers aren't morning people, but it's not their fault. Dr. Kayla Wallstrom is a researcher at the University of Minnesota studying how education policy affects learning. All teenagers have this shift in their brain that causes them to not feel sleepy until about 10.45 or 11 at night. But they still need at least eight hours of sleep. They don't really fully awake until about eight in the morning. That's because of melatonin. It's something you can buy at the pharmacy, but it's also a hormone our brains release for free to make us sleepy. Teenagers' brains release it on average three hours later than the brains of adults and young kids. That makes getting up for the 7.05 a.m. first period in Metro Nashville Public High Schools painful. Nashville's new mayor, Freddie O'Connell, wants to push back that first bell. Prematurely early start times, particularly for adolescents, are problematic from student performance, mental and emotional health. But getting it done won't be easy, and it could be expensive. One reason high schools in Nashville start so early is busing. Like many districts, Nashville uses the same buses and drivers to pick up first high schoolers, then middle schoolers, and finally grade schoolers. All right, here we go. Good morning. 
So the thinking has always been if some kids have to wait for the bus before sunrise, it should be sophomores, not kindergartners. And Mayor O'Connell admits some parents are concerned about the high school day ending later. It could interfere with sports or after-school jobs. Many families have a student who is able to work, uh, is expected to be in the economy. But the consequences of sleep deprivation for teenagers are a big deal. It's linked to depression, increased substance use, and lower grades. Researcher Kayla Wallstrom says figuring out later start times is worth it. She's talked with parents in districts that have done it. Many parents have anecdotally told me that their child is a different child. They are able to speak with them at breakfast. They are chatty in the car. They um, don't have moody episodes and fly off the handle. The parents are just saying it's remarkable that this has made such a change in their child's life and their family dynamics. All because a teenager gets a little more sleep. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Sweeney in Nashville, Tennessee. And this story comes from NPR's partnership with Nashville Public Radio and KFF Health News. Venezuela's oil industry is surging again after the U.S. lifted sanctions earlier this year. But the country's aging pumps and pipelines are rapidly disintegrating. Every single day we have an oil spill, not only one but three, four, five. The oil is now clogging one of South America's largest bodies of water and coating the shrimp and crabs pulled up by local fishing boats. We'll visit the shores of that contaminated lake tomorrow on All Things Considered. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, the latest hostage release from Gaza, coming up on WBUR in about 20 minutes. If you woke up before 7.15 this morning, you may have seen the gorgeous full moon hanging in the sky. Tonight, you get to see it again, just tiny, a little bit tinier anyway. It's known as the beaver moon. The next full moon is going to be the night after Christmas. Should be nice and clear tonight. A cold wind lows about 32 degrees. Tomorrow, nice, sunny, still windy, only about 40 degrees for a high. Partly sunny on Wednesday, still right about 40. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales. Proud to support Boston Medical Center, and they're supporting our families through addiction and recovery program committed to helping families enhance their children's development and providing support for recovery with access to specialty care and social services. Learn more at bmc.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Join some of your favorite WBR hosts at City Space for our annual reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol on Tuesday, December 19th. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Bruins are in Ohio to take on the Columbus Blue Jackets tonight. The Celtics have the night off. They host the Chicago Bulls tomorrow. 43 degrees in Boston at 549. The holiday season is basically here. That means visiting relatives, shopping for presents downtown, and for some, figuring out where to park. Parking in Boston can be a headache. The roads are windy, there's rotaries, there's street cleaning, and there's a lot of rules to follow. Here's a tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. Pay attention to resident-only signs. 
You'll need to have a valid neighborhood parking permit to park in certain spots. Quarters and even credit cards work at parking meters. There's also an app called Park Boston, so you could pay on your phone and extend your time easily. And metered spots are free on Sundays and city holidays. Check out our guide to take the pain out of parking in Greater Boston. Go to WBUR.org slash field guide. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. In March 2020, John Cale was in Brazil playing festival shows with his band. That's them on March 14th in Sao Paulo. Of course, COVID lockdowns were sweeping across the world. So Cale and the band cut the tour short and caught one of the last flights back to the States. Kale threw himself into his next project, recording a new album. My studio was in a shambles because it was about to get remodeled. And nearly every piece of gear I owned was locked away in a pile of rubble. So I rummaged through my house and found bits and bobs here and there. And I found a new appreciation for some beat-up old analog keyboards alongside a few things that I'd never played before. Kale is no stranger to making music in unconventional ways. In the early 60s, he left Wales and moved to New York City, where he fell into a blossoming experimental music scene. A few years later, he co-founded The Velvet Underground with Lou Reed. And ever since, he's been a stalwart of avant-garde music. But as he put this new album together, he realized he needed more than just different instrumentation to make it work. When I came back from Brazil, the album was written already. And I was trying to figure out who could add more intrigue into the album. So he called up some friends, like the singer Wiseblood and bands like Sylvan Esso and Animal Collective. The result is a highly collaborative record called Mercy, which is out now. So what stuck out about some of these collaborators that made you want to work with them? Most of the artists that joined me on, on the tracks, they had their own atmosphere to them. And I didn't try and push them in any direction. I just let them be and really inhale the spirit that they brought to the song. The emotion of the song really was joined by their performance. Wyatt's Blood has a very deep and emotional voice. She just warms the track, and Animal Collective really has this multi-voice personality. So I, um, I laughed a lot when, when, we, when we did Everlasting Days. What made you laugh? Just the quality of, of the voices that were there and how they, they sometimes abandoned what the uh, traditional approach to the melody would be. It was really part of the process of many different voices coming to terms with many different ideas in the song. I'd like to ask you about another one of the collaborations on this album, and that is the song that you did with the band Sylvan Asso. The 
song is called Time Stands Still, and I'm hoping you can just bring us into the studio and into your process. How did that one come together? I'd always enjoyed Sylvanessa's style of harmonizing, and I was hoping that a paths might cross, but as I was putting the finishing touches on this song, I got a call saying Amelia and Nick were in LA and could would love to drop by and say hello. And it was then I thought that the perfect time to see if they'd want to guest on the track that I was working on. I guess that's the perfect example of serendipity, but it was a natural fit and I couldn't be happier with the results. Was the talked with Nick Sanborn and Amelia Meath of Sylvan Esso last year, and one of the things that I remember from their conversation that they both told me is that when they're creating music, they're constantly trying to surprise one another with the work that they create in separate, and that with their latest record, one of their goals was to really discard all of the rules, everything they knew about creating music, and to really released themselves from conventions. And I wonder if any of that showed up for you in the collaboration that you had with them. Well, I, I was I was lucky to have as much time as I did with, with, with them. And I don't pay attention to, to convention and, and because I, I depend so much on improvisation, I don't stand listening to things for very long. I don't repeat choruses. I don't, the idea of the song doesn't depend on choruses that repeat themselves. And I, I also, I, I'm, I'm, I'm short-tempered, unfortunately. <laughs> and, I, and I don't, I really want to have as many new ideas as I possibly can in the song. This song is one of a couple different places on this album where I hear some trap or hip-hop influence coming through, both in the drums and the rhythm. Was that deliberate? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I sort of fell in love with hip-hop. It has so many lively approaches to songwriting. Hip-hop is the avant-garde of today. How so? There are unconventional approaches to emotions and creativity. They have no respect for solos and for all the other usual trappings that you have in, in songwriting. You've said that you always try to, quote, create music beyond the premise set before. Do you find that hard to keep doing after all of these years of creating? And do you feel like you've done that with this album? Yes to the last question, but I realized a long time ago that you've got, you've got improvisation is really you, your way of... If you start a song with just any kind of melody or rhythm that, that you, you have, you don't just stop because you haven't got a solution yet. You're better off working at it and helping it advance its, its ideas, whatever they are, and your, your audience is then your friend. have been working on this album for some time. Your career has spanned years. I just want to end by asking you, what's next for you? Well, yeah, it took two and a half years to do. So I'm now going out on the road and, and 
I, I don't want to summarize what I've, what I've just done. I mean, I have this uncanny kind of idea that if you, if you go and, and end up in a corner that you feel uncomfortable in, something will happen and you will come up with a solution. So that's kind of my mantra. That's John Cale. His new album, Mercy, is out now. John, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Latest on the pause in fighting in the Middle East this Monday, November 27th on All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Ahead this hour, the tricky balancing act for the nation of Georgia. It is trying to move closer to the West without provoking its neighbor, Russia. By imposing sanctions, we would never hurt Russian economy. But what we would manage to do is to shoot our own foot. I mean, what's the point? Plus, a thank you message for a doctor who went above and beyond the call of duty. This young doc took a $20 bill out of his wallet, walked us out to the curb, shoved us into a cab and said, get up to Lenox. Hill Hospital, and they'll take care of you. That's ahead. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Amid word tonight, 11 more Israeli hostages have been freed by Hamas. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Brussels for a NATO meeting. His aides say he's also heading back to the Middle East on this trip, as NPR's Michelle Kalman explains. On his flight to Brussels, Secretary Blinken spoke by phone with Qatar's foreign minister, who announced a two-day extension of the temporary truce in Gaza. A State Department official says the secretary plans 
plans to use his visit to Israel and the West Bank this week to stress the need for continued aid for Gaza and the release of all hostages held by Hamas. The secretary will also continue to discuss the future of Gaza and the need for a Palestinian state. The secretary will see some Arab leaders this week, too, when he attends the climate summit in Dubai. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Brussels. As graphic images from the war in Gaza flood social media platforms, people are claiming some of the deaths and injuries they depict may have been staged. NPR Shannon Bond reports on the resurgence of a disturbing trend. Claims that Palestinians are staging injuries and deaths are particularly widespread on social media, amplified by pro-Israel influencers. Mustafa Ayad of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue says it's a way of downplaying the horrors of war. One of the toughest parts of a war is believing that your, your side has been involved in killing civilians. False claims like these pop up after every catastrophe, from the war in Syria to the Russian invasion of Ukraine to mass shootings. Some posters online are also questioning whether Hamas killed 1,200 people in Israel on October 7th, despite copious evidence. Shannon Bond, NPR News. The New Mexico Supreme Court has affirmed a lower court ruling. The state's congressional map is constitutional. State Republican Party appealed, arguing Democratic lawmakers had gerrymandered New Mexico's second congressional district. Member station KUNM, Nash Jones reports. Of New Mexico's three congressional districts, the second used to be the only one that leaned Republican. But when the Democratic-controlled state legislature redrew it in 2021, it split up the state's conservative oil patch and added a progressive portion of Albuquerque. A district court judge ruled last month that Democrats had intended to weaken Republican votes, but that their efforts weren't successful enough to throw out the map. In its appeal, the New Mexico Republican Party argued those efforts amount to an egregious gerrymander. With the map still in place, Democratic Representative Gabe Vasquez is heading for a 2024 rematch with Republican Yvette Harrell. He narrowly ousted her last year. For NPR News, I'm Nash Jones in Albuquerque. Stocks edge lower to start the new trading week. The Dow fell 56 points. The Nasdaq was down 9 points. The S&P 500 fell 8 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council held a hearing today on a program that would provide a guaranteed basic income to people who live under the poverty level in the city. Sponsors of the measure say that's nearly 19 percent of city residents, including about one-third of children in the city. Boston's Chief of Economic Development, Shagun Iwadawu, says a guaranteed basic income is just one tool that the city's looking at to combat poverty in Boston, but he says it should not prevent people in need from receiving other aid. If a program's put together that it's inclusive of as many people as possible and that having existing benefits will not then exclude you from participation. Supporters say today's hearing is just the start of a conversation. Dawu says the city has not developed a pilot program at this point. Every year, the state legislature has to finalize a budget that ties up loose ends, but it has yet to do so this year. This is lawmakers' second most tardy closeout budget since at least 1995. The delay means allocations, including a quarter of a million dollars for the state's emergency shelter system, are in limbo. It also means the state comptroller, William McNamara, missed the October deadline to file annual financial reports. Last week, he prodded lawmakers to get the budget done. Boston had an exceptionally high tide this morning, leading to minor flooding on the coastline. These so-called king tides happen several times a year when the moon, the sun, and the earth align. 
They've been getting a lot higher with sea level rise. As WBR's Barbara Moran reports, today's King Tide offers a look at the city's future. Boston's experienced about 10 inches of sea level rise over the last century. This morning, that extra water was pouring onto the paving stones at the end of Long Wharf. So right now what we're looking at is the very end of Long Wharf is underwater. We've got water coming up through storm drains at the chart house right here, and we're not even at high tide. That's Rebecca Shore with UMass Boston's Stone Living Lab. She says the sea around Boston will rise at least another foot in coming decades, and it will take better zoning, adaptable shorelines, and creative thinking to keep coastal cities like Boston livable. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Merriam-Webster says people wanted to keep it real this year. That's why the Springfield-based company says it chose authentic as its dictionary's word of the year. It defined it as not false or imitation. Merriam-Webster's Peter Sokolowski says the word of the year gives you a snapshot into what the year was like. We do see that ideas about truth and of verification of identity and fact-checking and trust are all top of mind and our language counts, you know, words matter. And we find as a dictionary that people really pay attention to language that's in the news. And a word like authentic is an idea that is on our mind. This is Merriam-Webster's 20th anniversary of choosing a top word. In the forecast clear tonight, freezing out there, lows about 32. Tomorrow should be sunny again, windy again, only about 40 for a high. Partly sunny on Wednesday, still around 40. 42 now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A deal has been struck to extend the temporary ceasefire in Gaza. That is according to officials in Qatar who have been mediating between Israel and Hamas. Hamas also said in a statement that a deal has been reached. This comes as Israel and Hamas hold another round of hostage and prisoner swaps. Hamas has handed over 11 hostages. Israel is poised to release 33 Palestinian prisoners in exchange. NPR's Brian Mann is following developments from Tel Aviv. Hey there, Brian. Hi, Mary Louise. Okay, start with the details of what we know about this extension of the truce. It is still temporary? That's right. Uh, This first prisoner exchange agreement was for four days, and that ends tonight. So this new deal, really hammered out at the very last minute, will stretch the ceasefire another two days. It was negotiated with the help of officials in Egypt, Qatar, and the U.S., and The framework appears to be that each additional day of the pause, Hamas will release roughly another 10 Israeli hostages. Israeli officials have signaled a willingness to release three Palestinian prisoners for every Israeli hostage that's let go. Again, Mm -hmm. we're waiting to see details of that confirmed by Israel. But a a short time ago, President Biden thanked the parties involved for working out this arrangement. And, And Biden said, I'm quoting here, Mary Louise, we will not stop until all of the hostages held by Hamas terrorists are released. And I understand this latest group, this latest group of Israeli hostages has now been released. What do we know? According to the Israeli military, another 11 Israeli hostages, among them some very young children, are now out. The Red Cross brought them out of Gaza a short time ago. Uh, Now that they're safely in Israel, buses will transport 33 Palestinian prisoners to locations in Jerusalem and the West Bank. 
So despite incredible anger and distrust on both sides, this arrangement has continued to succeed so far and will now continue through Wednesday. One notable thing here is how Israelis are responding to these releases. I've been in the big square here in Tel Aviv where people are gathering, and there just aren't big celebrations. There's joy, but it's it's a solemn joy as Israelis remain focused on the hostages who haven't come home. Uh, today, many of these hostages released are very young children who still have parents left behind, still held hostage in Gaza. Hmm. Step back and, and let me step back from the today's news and let me just ask this. Is there any sign that what we're still calling a temporary ceasefire, a pause, that this could lead to something more permanent? There's not. At this point, there's not a sign of that. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has continued to say bluntly this war will resume as soon as this hostage for prisoner exchange process plays out. Leaders of Israel's military have said the same thing. And, and this is something I'm hearing from Israelis on the street. They want the hostages home. That's the first priority. But there's a lot of popular support for fighting Hamas until the organization is wiped out. You know, Hamas's attack October 7th killed roughly 1,200 people. They took an estimated 240 prisoners. That was a shock, and people here say they won't feel safe until Hamas is gone from Israel's borders. And then speak to the situation inside Gaza, because that's been a goal of this pause, to let food, to let aid reach the people who are still there. What do we know? Is aid making its way inside Gaza? Yeah, I spoke to an official with the World Health Organization today, and a lot of food and fuel and medical supplies are reaching the hardest-hit areas of Gaza. But it's important to say things are really grim. Uh, parts of this densely populated community have been flattened. The last 24 hours, heavy rains have been falling. That's adding to the misery. Uh, NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, was able to talk to a man named Hatem Selmi from Gaza City who's just struggling to survive. Selmi told us that life was just catastrophic in the days leading up to this truce. He said no food and no water. He says once the ceasefire started, he and the seven members of his family did get a little help, uh, some relief, but, but he said there just wasn't enough. There's too little aid to meet the demand, he told us. So far, according to officials in Gaza, more than 13,300 Palestinians have died, many of them civilians. So the experts I've been speaking to, Mary Louise, say until this war really ends, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is going to keep growing. Yeah. Um, Brian, you are there in Israel. But before I let you go, I want to ask about something that happened here in the U.S., the three Palestinian men who were shot and wounded over the weekend in Vermont. You spoke to the mother of one of the men. She lives in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. What'd she tell you? Yeah, Elizabeth Price is the mother of Hisham al-Watani, one of those Palestinian college students. She told me by phone today from Ramallah that she and her husband decided it would be better for their son to stay in the U.S. through the holidays because of the war in Gaza and the growing violence in the West Bank. The last six weeks have been a time of great suffering in Palestine, and, and we have suffered. My husband didn't want Hisham to come back for Christmas because he thought America would be safe and safer than, than Palestine. So now she and her husband are racing to travel from Ramallah to the U.S. And the man accused of shooting these Palestinian men, uh, Jason Eaton, pleaded not guilty in court today in Vermont. That is NPR's Brian Mann reporting for us from Tel Aviv. Thank you, Brian. Thank you.
Before Russia invaded Ukraine, Russia invaded Georgia, and Russian troops still occupy 20% of the country. But the rest of Georgia continues to welcome Russians and Russian businesses, even as Georgia seeks membership in the EU. As NPR's Charles Maines reports, it's a balancing act with no clear endgame. Here's the scene. In Georgia's resort city of Batumi, on the Black Sea, a packed crowd at a recent concert is watching the American band The Killers, who are killing it. Until they weren't. Observing a band tradition, Killers singer Brennan Flowers invites an audience member to join on drums. Randomly, he chooses a Russian. I don't know, you know, we, we don't know the etiquette of this land, but he, this guy's a Russian. Are you okay with a Russian coming up here? <laughs> Many were not, and the situation quickly turned ugly. You finished yet or no? You want to flip me up? You come up here. The killers had inadvertently stepped into a controversy that has roiled Georgian society for much of its history. How to navigate relations with their bigger and more powerful Russian neighbors. It's a debate that's grown only more acute amid the current war in Ukraine. The Ukrainian scenario is a copy-paste of what happened in Georgia. That's Nikolas Samkharadze, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in Georgian's parliament. He's also a member of the ruling Georgia Dream Party. He says the recent tensions with Moscow trace back to 2008, when Russian forces seized 20% of Georgian territory in a five-day war. The fighting broke out just months after NATO promised Georgia a path towards eventual membership in the military alliance. We learned that uh, when Russia invaded us, we, we stood there alone. Samkharadze argues NATO's partial embrace left Georgia vulnerable to Russian aggression, which in 2008 came without any real consequences for Moscow. Samkharadze says it was a bitter lesson for Georgia in big power politics between East and West. Yeah, we had the moral support from the West. But three months later, it was again business as usual with Russia. And that's what can make this government's current policies somewhat confusing. Today, on the streets of Georgia's leafy capital, Tbilisi, Russians are seemingly everywhere. Many arrived in the days after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, fleeing possible military conscription. But Russians of all political stripes continue to enjoy visa-free travel to Georgia. Russian airlines restarted daily flights over the summer. Russian nationals can still buy property and easily open businesses. Russian tourism is booming. And Georgia, well, the government has refused to join the West in imposing sanctions on Moscow. In fact, trade between the two countries has only expanded amid the war in Ukraine. For us, our interests are the most important. Georgia is simply doing what's best for Georgia, argues Samkharadze, at least while the West is providing zero protections, military or financial, in return. So by imposing sanctions, we would never manage to hurt Russian economy, but what we would manage to do is to shoot uh, our own uh, foot. I mean, what's the point? Uh, if you cannot uh, harm Russia, then why, why should you harm yourself? Government critics and would-be challengers ahead of national elections next year say Georgia shouldn't focus so heavily on the past. Gigo Bokeria leads the pro-European movement for Liberty Party. I think our allies underestimated Russian threat, but does it change our, our choice to be part of that world instead of uh, totalitarian uh, dictatorships. Bokaria says the current government's decision to accommodate Moscow is hurting Georgia's long-term prospects, both with the EU and NATO. They are fundamentally exploiting the natural fear of our citizens of war and Russian aggression, 
and trying to use that threat as a justification for distancing us from a free world. That includes mimicking what critics say are illiberal Russian-style policies at home on issues such as LGBTQ rights. Last March, the government also adopted a controversial foreign agent law that bore a strong resemblance to Russian laws that have been used to target government opponents and crush civil society. A wave of protests in the capital ultimately saw Georgia Dream rescind the bill, but opposition politicians like Yelena Khashtaria, who rallied the public against the law, say deep suspicions of Russian influence linger. When you need to survive to have the Western support, and you are taking the steps that actually go against Western values, go against Western recommendations, go against your own interest, then the question is why you are doing that. Three weeks ago, the European Union granted Georgia provisional candidacy for eventual EU membership, offering more encouraging assessments to Ukraine and another former Soviet Republic, Moldova. Khashtaria worries that under the current government, Georgia risks being left behind. For the first time in our history, Europe is watching and the West is watching towards this region. And at this very moment, they are doing whatever they can to miss this historic opportunity. This Georgian debate is unfolding at a moment when the region is in flux over Russia's war in Ukraine. The outcome of that conflict, more than anything, may ultimately decide tiny Georgia's future. And just how long Georgia's balancing act between East and West can last. Charles Maines, NPR News, Tbilisi, Georgia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us here on this Monday evening here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on Marketplace, the first shopping mall opened in the 1950s during suburban sprawl as a place to mimic downtowns where people could shop. We'll look back at the history of malls and how shoppers feel about them today. A four-week rally for the Dow came to an end today. The Dow lost nearly two-tenths of a percent. S&P lost exactly two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq fell less than one-tenth of a percent. Shares of the Bedford-based company iRobot fell 17 percent today iRobot makes the Roomba robotic vacuum. The loss comes as European regulators express concern that Amazon's proposed $1.7 billion acquisition of iRobot might stifle competition. And Rhode Island-based CVS Health is suing the U.S. government. The Boston Business Journal reports that CVS says it is owed a $400 million tax refund. It says the IRS improperly denied its claim for a tax break aimed at American-made goods. It argues that its production of certain prescription drugs and its packaging qualifies for the benefit. The IRS has yet to respond in court. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. And Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Overnight tonight should be clear, a bright full moon up above. Temperatures should be down around freezing tonight. Then for tomorrow, lots of sunshine. Highs just about 40 degrees. It's 621. Giving Tuesday is about turning your modest contribution into something much bigger. 
I'm Rupa Shinoy. When you give to WBUR, we'll turn your support into journalism that has real and meaningful impact for millions of listeners and readers across Boston and beyond. Give now to get in on our Giving Tuesday match. Some members of our Murrow Society gave their money to make your support of WBUR 50% bigger. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We're going to hear now from the author of a book that came out this fall. It's a book about a trial, a complete spectacle of a trial, a nation riveted by the proceedings. At the center of the trial, the testimony of a man who says one provably false thing after another. The more outrageously, obviously untrue the things the man says, the more his supporters surge to his defense. The book is fiction, but based on real events in 19th century England and Jamaica. The title is The Fraud. The author is Zadie Smith. And when we reached her in London, I asked why she was drawn to the saga of Sir Roger Tichborne. I think I've always been interested in contradictory figures like this. Like, I remember being really fascinated by the OJ trial, even from over here in England. The idea that the truth wasn't the ultimate test in that case. It happened again with Trump and it happened with the Titchborn claimant too, that when a system is so twisted and perverse and so unjust, there will be a popular reaction against it. And those kind of people who appear in the form of fiction, that's the best way I can put it. I guess OJ appeared in some sense as a white black man. Trump appears as a kind of working class billionaire man of the people who was also a real estate mogul and Titchborn was another one of these figures they use fiction they use the tools of fiction and because i'm a fiction writer that interests me you mentioned oj simpson you mentioned donald trump I never did. Uh, And I was going to ask whether our contemporary politics were on your mind, to what extent they were on your mind as you were writing. I mean, I don't think you could have a mind in the past 20 years without contemporary politics pressing in on them. And it it was on my mind. But to be honest, the parallels between the trials, I I didn't have to make any effort in that, that direction. They just existed. I mean, there even is in the Titchbourne trial, an almost crazed lawyer who was interested in the kind of theory of a leader coming every, I think it's every seven years in his case, to change humanity. There was this kind of Steve Bannon type Giuliani mix in one person. So these things kept happening as I was reading. So I didn't have to do much in that direction. All I did was tell the truth and the the analogies kind of made themselves. Well, let's talk about some of the characters. Um, One of them is William Ainsworth, who was a real writer, a contemporary, fair to say, a a frenemy of Charles Dickens. Yeah, I think frenemy is the right word. (laughs) And he published a bunch of novels, most of which have been lost to history. Did you read a bunch of them to try to capture him? I mean, I have all of them. Reading all of them is a task beyond my capabilities, I think. (laughs) Or at least interest, it sounds like. Right. There's 43 of them, I think, altogether. It just interested me that he had written all these books and was so completely forgotten. And I like the idea of someone who was so optimistic about fiction, who loved it so much, but who had absolutely no talent. I I found that combination (laughs) inherently comic. (laughs) 
Charles Dickens does not come across as a particularly amiable character uh, in this novel. And I wondered, did you, as one of the you know, most prominent writers living and working today in Britain, have fun? Did you find joy in skewering one of the most prominent writers living and working a century and a half ago in the UK? Listen, if I'm skewering Dickens, I'm skewering myself because the traits he has, the personality traits, I know I share a lot of them. So it, it was in no way attack. If it's anything, it's, it's a self-attack because I recognize that kind of writerly ruthlessness and monomania and, <laughs> and foolishness about politics and sentimentality. Those are all things that are in me as much as they're in him. So maybe that's why the portrait seems severe. You both um, have a talent for building characters. And there's one more I want to ask about, which is Andrew Bogle. Right. He grew up enslaved on a sugarcane plantation in Jamaica. How does he enter your story? Well, he was the witness, the main witness in the trial. Without him, there would be no trial. He's also a real person? He was a real person? He's a completely real person. Everybody in the book is real. There are no fictional people in there, really. And there are, I think, 12 volumes of the Titchbourne trial. Obviously, I have not read all of them. But that means that as a black man in Britain, his is probably one of the longest narratives we have, I think, of that period, of a black man in a courtroom describing his own life. It's an incredible oral tale. And so I felt like I wanted to preserve it. I wanted people to be able to read it. And I wanted to demonstrate what made this trial so compelling because it wasn't the Titchbourne claimant, it was Bogle. People bought papers obsessively to read what he had to say, both about his life in Jamaica and his life in England. You're hopping back and forth in this novel between um, between two countries, between England and Jamaica. And there's one line I wanted to ask you about because it's beautiful writing. You say, England was not a real place at all. England was an elaborate alibi. As I say, it's beautiful. What does it mean? I mean that England's history is mostly offshore, that its colonial brutality was offshore, its enslavement of millions was offshore, and that that enabled England to have an idea of itself which is not accurate. And that is what I wanted to write about, the gap between the delusion, the belief of what England is and what it really was. Now, I am English and I love England. So the truth to me really matters. I I need to know it. I need to know it to retain the love I have for my country, but also to know exactly what it was and what it did. And the brutality of its behavior in the Caribbean, I I think is without equal. So part of writing this novel was was to find out the truth for myself. And this is um, this is your eighth novel. It's your first work of historical fiction. So you're going back and excavating events from 150 years ago. To what extent did that inform your understanding of England today? I think those delusions remain. I think they're incredibly hard to let go of. I think one of the things I really noticed, I've always noticed since I was growing up, is that the thing we're famous for as a country, I think, is our sense of humor, that we're, we're funny. And we value this very highly. And one of the things I noticed about it is that, as well as being delightful, it is also self-protective. So when I sat down to write this novel, I could very clearly envision an English reader thinking, 
as they started to read, oh, you're you're getting bogged down. Oh, she's going to be serious. Oh, she's not being funny anymore. Oh, no, she's going to corner us about the enslaved people and the colonial situation. This kind of English feeling that you've stopped being fun when you do that. You've, you've dragged things down. You've, you've become belligerent. So I wanted in, in my um, most ironic and most comic and most charming voice to tell the truth. So the novel, I think when you read it, I hope when you read it, for quite a while, you might not think you're about to hear anything you don't want to hear, <laughs> but you will hear it and you'll hear it in full. Well, it was a joy to read, Zadie Smith. Thank you for writing it. Thank you. It was a pleasure to write. The book is The Fraud. The author is Zadie Smith. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 42 degrees in Boston, a beautiful full moon tonight. Cold out there, down to about freezing. Tomorrow, sunny, windy, chilly, only about 40 degrees for a high. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Registration open for winter classes at newartcenter.org.